Welcome to The Writer's Room with me, novelist Charlotte Wood. In each episode of this podcast, I speak with another writer or another artist about their work, how they work, and what sustains them through a creative life. Heather Mitchell is one of Australia's most acclaimed actors. With a career spanning four decades, she has performed in hundreds of theatre productions and too many film and television roles to count. Those credits include Muriel's Wedding, The Great Gatsby, Proof, Palm Beach, Rake, A Place to Call Home and Tim Minchin's recent comedy Upright. Her recent stage performances include lead roles in the Sydney Theatre Company's productions of Carol Churchill's Top Girls, Ruth Park's The Harp in the South and Still Point Turning, the Catherine McGregor story. Heather has worked alongside some of the world's greatest actors, directors and writers and she's won awards both here and in the US. She's on the board of the Sydney Theatre Company and this year she was made a member of the Order of Australia for significant services to the performing arts and to the community. I've seen Heather perform in the theatre many times and as soon as she appears on stage, audiences are just completely riveted by her presence. I sat down with her recently in Sydney, just as COVID-19 restrictions lifted, to talk about the actor's process in finding and developing character. It's so wonderful to be here with you today, Heather, in this strange and very destabilising time for many artists, so I really appreciate you joining me today. Oh, it's wonderful to be here with you. It's fabulous. Now, as you know, this um, podcast is called The Writer's Room, and it's primarily about the writing process, but I'm also really keen to sort of cross-pollinate with other artists, um, as it were, to get their perspectives on the creative process and you know there's so much I think that writers can learn from other art forms and I've been really keen to talk to you for ages about acting and today I thought I'd ask you a lot about character and how to find and inhabit a character as an actress but also broaden out into some questions about the creative life and Mm -hmm. how one sustains oneself in um, Difficult times, times, and I can't mm. think of a more difficult time for theatre practitioners than right now. Yeah. So, Heather, you know, you've had a long career in which to develop a kind of process, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, when you first look at a script that somebody wants you to play a role in, just to see if you're interested in it, what are you looking for at first? I think, well, firstly, when, when it's so interesting that you say when someone offers you, or gives you a script to look at to see if you're interested in it, rarely does that happen in reality because usually uh, if you're shown a script, it's, uh, let's say it's for film and television, it's just so that you will go for a, a screen test, for instance. So there's also this process before getting to actually inha- you know, have the opportunity to um, grasp a script and work with it. But if you have got the role and you're given the script, then the first thing, it's so much of what I look for is, I suppose the first thing is the lack of judgment. I try to approach everything with a lack of judgment because uh, I think the first thing I'm looking for is what is the writer? I'm, I'm praying that it's a good script to start with. I'm sort of going, I'm with excitement and trepidation, I approach a script because the excitement 
certainly overwhelms the trepidation. And the trepidation is only that I want it to be really good mm. and I hope it's really good. So I think what I'm first looking for is the, the writer. I'm trying to find the writer in it. Um, so reading it, my first read of a script is literally for story. Read the story. Um, and, and, and if I feel judgment coming into my mind at all, like, oh, my God, how could they write that? Or what's this word? Or, you know, I, I note it and I go, why am I doing that? I've got to then say, why am I doing that? And I'll even put a little pencil mark on it to note that I have had some question there or some thought that's <clears throat> getting in the way of me having just a fluid read. Mm -hmm. So I suppose to answer the question, the first thing I'm looking for is the writer's voice, mm -hmm. trying to find what the writer, who the, not who the writer is necessarily, but what they're trying to say, what their story is. Okay, fascinating. And when you say, um, you know, the judgment is kind of making you resist it in that moment. Is that a judgment about the quality of the writing or a judgment about what the character is doing or saying? Uh, interesting. Well, it's, it's not the character because I don't yet know who the character necessarily is. Usually with a script someone might have, um, not if it's theatre so much, but um, in film and television, you've given a little paragraph about who this character is, which can sometimes colour it in a way that you wish you hadn't read it because you want to read it fresh. However, no, it's more a judgment to do with probably a past experience more than anything, something that had been written that I hadn't felt um, that had worked particularly well, that I hadn't been able to inhabit, no matter how hard I tried. So it's probably one, it's a hang-up of my own. Or I'll just think, wait on, how can that character say that right now? But then I have to say to myself, read the story. Don't, I'm wanting to go further than I'm ready to and just read the story. Right. So it's 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 um, <clears throat> just keeping on track with being honest with yourself and towards the writer. And why is it important to read for story first? Right. Well, in relation to a character even, a, a, mm. all the characters in a story will be going on some sort of journey, no matter how, whether it's the central character or whether it's even, not minor characters, but the smaller roles. So... You want to understand the overarching story so that then later when you dissect it more, when you excavate and start looking at the characters, you keep coming back to, okay, the writer, what are they trying to say? Is this story about um, someone who achieves something that they've always wanted or is it about someone who never gets to achieve it? Is it a hero's story or is it a tragic story, you know? So it's, um, it's making sure that when I then look at the character I'm going to play, that I am in that right in that world, that I am part of that story. Okay, well, so you've got the role. Before you start, and you've read it for the story, mm. so even before you start rehearsing or you get in a room with other actors and directors and mm. people, are, are there sort of particular phases of development of how you start to inhabit the character. Mm. What do you do after that first story reading? Look, I used to not read, when I was younger, I didn't try and read it, do too much work before the rehearsal room. I used to go in and I'd try and be as open as I could be and, and explore simply through the rehearsal process. Now I've changed and that I do much more beforehand now. So I'm talking now about theatre, yeah. which is slightly different to when you're doing TV and film, but in theatre, I like now to read it quite a few times. So I'll read the script, the story, then I will read, I then read it, um, I tend to read it 
and look at where the character that I'm playing, it's almost like a musical score or it's like a visual um, aspect that I look at and if my character for instance is in the first scene and then she doesn't appear and then she's got a monologue in the middle there followed by two other scenes and then she doesn't appear till the end then it's sort of like this coda and a cadence and a piece in the middle and then other characters might be all the way through so it's almost like a visual I get a visual sense of where the character will be in the whole story in terms of a movement thing almost if that makes sense um, and wanna... why is that important? So you're looking at the structure of the whole yeah. thing. It's important to mm. me because, I mean, I have dyslexia, which I didn't realise I had for a long time. Um, it used to terrify me to get up in front of people and speak if I had to speak um, unprepared or had to read something. Uh, so I didn't know it was dyslexia, but now that I do, I realise that I think a lot in images. So um, I like to see in my mind the a pictorial kind of graph almost mm. of the piece um, and then I the next process is that I would then look at the character and you can't wait to do that because part of you is like you've been given this three course meal and you think I want to get straight to the dessert <laughs> but you know you have to go through other things but the real joy is then getting down into that character so I think I look at things like, which are very basic, fairly fundamental acting techniques where you look at what every other character says about you, right. if they say things about you, and you put a question mark there, is that true or not? Uh, look at what, which I'm sure is very similar to writing. Oh, no, this is so fascinating to me. It's, uh, I imagine it's a very similar process. Well, to I do. don't know. I think it's quite different, but, you know, it's going to steal work, everything you say. But when I read your work, that's what I hear, is also what I'm reading is I'm thinking... Is this person believe what that other person just said about them, or is it because yeah, it's, well, it's that's in your certainly work? Certainly, those questions come up. Yeah. But so I then look at everything, anyone who speaks about my character, because so often you're you're alive in other scenes. Just because you're not in them doesn't mean yes. you're not alive in them. Or someone may be carrying something that has had an interaction with your character, even though you're not mentioned. There may be something in there which may help you also as a character understand your relationship with that person. So I'm looking at. The interactions that aren't necessarily even there, but could be historic. So oh, I look so at the facts. I look at try and see all the facts. What are the facts? What do I know to be true? What is true compared, which differentiates facts, differentiates from what I think might be true. So I look at that, and then I look at what do I say about other characters, or other events, or other things. Do we share? Do, does my character and another character share a similar event that has taken place, which we have both perceived differently? And I note that. So I'm sort of collecting information. If there's any research that can be done, if my character is a is a um, entomologist, or you know, depending on what the character is, I'll do research on that so that I, on the first day of rehearsal, I have some background information on that. Um, I would. I'm talking about theatre at the moment. I would um, then let my imagination just have fun. So I would then read again thinking, oh, wow, where could this go? Uh, and also, after I've got a taste of what I think the world is, and I think I personally feel I have a, a reasonably good sense of the world of a play, that like the difference between reading an Arthur Miller play to reading a contemporary Australian play or reading, um, and if the writer's done a really great job I, I love that feeling of going ah oh, I get that world I get the sense of that world and that's really important to me 
Um, what does that do for your sort of how do you take the world into your characterization or is it well if it's a it, well I suppose if it's a period piece then that certainly helps but some period pieces use very contemporary language for instance others don't so it depends then on the language because that will help me then understand I suppose I immediately have an instinct then for oh that's a man that's a play that's in a certain manner or this plays in a certain genre or this is it just it's a way of placing yourself into the world a bit more and saying mm. oh this person this is a very contemporary um, uh, staccato-y sort of or it's more languid thing so that's when it comes to the language so then I'll be looking more at language and then I'll just go through and the bit that I really love doing and sometimes I probably won't do this till I'm in rehearsal so whether you want to talk about this now but I will also skim it skim through it is looking at the language that a character uses and some characters um, might be repetitive with their language um, and the writer has intentionally um, written them with um, um, short sentences or um, very long sentences or their thoughts flow or they keep going back on a thought or you know, they repeat things and I love that discovering that if a writer has gone to that length and that depth of understanding of a character um, but then I also look for verbs and this is probably jumping ahead this is more about learning lines I look for the verbs and um, look for uh, it, the verbs I find really important if I'm learning a monologue for instance or a paragraph even I look I, I'll actually just look at the verbs um, she passed uh, down the, she, she, she passed through the corridors following the man walking briskly towards the th and I'll just go past followed walked mm. and I'll just look at the verbs and that will help me understand where she's going where she where her intentions are leading her right so I love looking at verbs that's amazing because verbs is you know when you're teaching writing it's like that's you know one of the most crucial oh, really? things is to really choose your verb, make things verbs, not adjectives, you know, because it's active. Yes, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, yeah, I didn't know it that. brings movement straight away into a piece yeah. of writing. That's fascinating. Let's sure. get on to the body. Yeah. Because one thing I think novelists uh, often forget is that people have bodies. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> easy in a novel yeah. to have someone really inhabiting their head most of the time yeah. or just this sort of disembodied... Um, person, you know, walking around and stuff, but they don't seem to often feel. Often novels don't seem to inhabit body, bodies very well, whereas actors and actresses. Yeah, and boy, did you must. inhabit that well in your book, The Weekend? Well, it's the, one of the, the women's interesting bodies. Interesting people very, have talked about the yeah. bodies. Some people are horrified by the bodies in that book, by the kind of. Oh, the, the description of the leather thongs <laughs> and the. Um, but also, you know, sitting in a car and what it felt like mm. physically and the heat and the... So I was... That's a really interesting thing that you would say that about writers. And I think it's interesting because I think some novelists write about the character in space. Yes. Like you're aware of where the person is vividly, but you're right. You're sometimes not aware of that person's physicality. Yes. And maybe, that's you know, interesting. that's appropriate mm. for... Mm. different kinds of books and whatever but mm. so um how much of your work as an 
actress is about the body? Well, huge amount because that's all you've got. <laughs> and your mind and your imagination. So the body is, she says, sitting up straight. I know, I'm really, I really I straight my posture. <laughs> While we're talking, when Heather's um, sort of giving an example of something, her body changed, your posture completely changed. <laughs> well, I immediately just sat up straight. <laughs> um, but physically, yes, very important. So it's, I, I do find this really fascinating about actors and I love when I'm in a rehearsal room watching other actors because we all know how uncomfortable it feels until you make that transition from just saying the words, just doing the actions for it to get into the body. And like anything in life, it's habitual. It's about uh, introducing a habit and practicing that habit until it becomes second nature. And I mean, the ideal is that your body becomes your mind. So that your mind, which is doing all the work and does the homework and does the rehearsal, which is why I love rehearsals, the mind is so active, that until it goes into the body, um, you can't do it. It will feel, you will never have confidence. Mm. You will feel self-conscious. You will, it's sort of mechanical. It's very difficult to do, which is why so many people find the idea of getting up and doing something in front of people so difficult because they haven't inhabited it. But once you can inhabit it, which means the process of repeating actions so many times till they become second nature. It's like anything. But that initial process of mm. saying, so um, I'd love you to give me examples mm -hmm. you know, from yeah. your work of yeah. the way you approach a certain okay. thing. So when you think, okay, this character is... Um, oh. Well, Catherine McGregor, I did... Yes. I, okay, so I was very fortunate to have this extraordinary opportunity of portraying Catherine McGregor, um, the most amazing transgender woman, on, um, on stage. Now, I don't think, firstly, that I could ever do that now. I think just managed, uh, you know, even when they offered me that role, Priscilla Jackman, extraordinary young director, when she offered it to me, I said, I couldn't possibly do this. It must be a trans person who does well, this Well, that's role. so interesting because I was going to get onto that question later oh, on. Oh, sorry, so okay. let's come back to come that because it is really interesting. I'll talk about that later, but just in terms of... <laughs> We interrupt this broadcast because Charlotte is an idiot. <laughs> in our original conversation, I promised that we were going to come back to the topic of Heather taking on the role of trans woman Catherine McGregor and the kind of complicated politics of that decision. But then we got caught up, I got caught up in the rest of the conversation and we ran out of time and we didn't come back to it. But it is a topic that I don't didn't want to leave unaddressed. So with Heather's great forbearance, I've come back to see her and um, to talk about this question actors sometimes face and writers absolutely increasingly face of whose story is allowed to be told by whom. So Heather, back to our talk the other day, when you were asked to play the role of Catherine McGregor, you said in our conversation that initially you thought, no, I can't do that, it has to be a trans mm. actor. Um, so what happened then to change your mind about that? Well, funnily, even though I did say that, I sort of lied because my first reaction when I read the script was, I really want to do this <laughs> because she's such an amazing, the story is so incredible. So that was my you know, actor instinct and probably ego a bit sort of going, oh, what a great, great woman, what an amazing woman. But pretty instantly after that, I just went, what are they thinking? Um, how could this possibly be? And I, my 
my conscience, I suppose, just went, no, you can't do this at all. So Priscilla Jackman, who whose script it was, who had spent years sort of working on this, and thank goodness she did, because it's really amazing. Um, I had a conversation with her, and she was so generous, and um, uh, we talked at length about it. And basically, I just said, I don't think it's right. I just think it must be a trans person playing this role, a trans woman. And um, I said, look, I think you need to find one, basically. And she, she sort of said, look, we are looking, we've been looking. So basically she came back and said, and the company came back and said, look, they have looked and they really are having trouble finding someone who they feel was appropriate for the role. But moreover than that, Catherine, um, who it's her story, <clears throat> she was very clear to Priscilla that she was a trans woman and she wanted, um, in preference, a woman to play her. Um, and because Catherine has had, um, you know, complete transition and is living you know, as a trans woman, that it was very obviously important to her. So after I met Catherine, I was just blown, you know, blown away by her and felt the great privilege of being asked to do this. And with her blessing, uh, complete blessing, thought, well, yeah, I'm not walking away from this. So if Catherine, clearly, if it hadn't been with her blessing, I wouldn't have done it, mm. not at all. But I'm so glad I did it um, because I learned so much, if not just about Catherine, but the effect that it had on people who came to see it and I realised what an incredibly important story it was for people to hear because so many people like myself didn't have a huge understanding of what gender fluidity even meant or what I mean I understood cisgender and binary and I understood a whole lot of terms but until you really speak to people and really um, under, you know, begin to get any sort of understanding of what people live through and endure and um, and uh, challenge themselves with and are, be, are challenged through society, um, you'd have no understanding, really. Mm. So I feel like, if anything, for me, it helped me understand so much more than I did. And what was the response like? Like, I know it was a kind of lauded um, production and your performance was especially praised. Did you get any pushback from trans commentators of the trans community? There was some pushback, but not aggressive. There was pushback, but it was gentle. It was, um, <clears throat> I think, the people who, trans people who felt possibly it was inappropriate, thought at least the story's been told. Um, people who, there were a couple of critics, I think, who gently, very gently observed and stated that it was a great shame that it wasn't a trans person playing the role, but that nevertheless they admired the production uh, and why it was, you know, that the story was important. So the pushback was not aggressive, not that I experienced. Um, and if I had experienced it, it would have been all right. Like, yeah. I was prepared for that. And did you expect it? Yeah, I did. And I thought, well, I can only react to that as to say I'm sorry that you... I'm sorry that this has caused you some grief or upset, um, but it's a story that I believe at the moment I want mm. to be part of telling. Um, what was quite extraordinary was having people come in the foyer afterwards to stay back, I met like older couples whose children were um, going transitioning and, you know, one couple had never been able to discuss it together. And they obviously had a, seemed to have a good relationship but they just could not discuss it and they said she brought him to the play not telling her husband what it was really about. And he was weeping at the end and she said, she wrote to me later and said, um, thank you that 
allowed us to begin the conversation. Right. And um, yeah, look, I think it was it, it it went beyond me playing the role. Yes. You know, it became it was really about it's about Catherine and it's about her story. So, but I understand there were also consultants and people yeah, involved. Absolutely trans people in the production itself. Yeah, we had fantastic, um, and there were trans, um, wonderful trans actor in the um, in the show. We had a trans advisor, we had a trans assistant director. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, we certainly, Priscilla, you know, absolutely made sure that the creative influences in the show were, were trans people. Mm. Um, and uh, to make sure that... Uh, you know, you know, so I could ask advice or I could um, have clearer um, understanding mm. for those things, yeah. That seems important to me, that the structures around it were... Um, oh, so important. ...sort of inclusive in that way. Um, are there roles, you know, I so get it when you said just now that on first reading it you thought, oh, I want to play that role, and... You know, are there other roles that you can imagine turning down mm. even though you knew you could do something great with it because of reasons like this? Look, I think I... Well, there are certain... I suppose there are a few very clear um, uh, ones that you just wouldn't do. <laughs> I don't probably have to say what they are, but there'd be some that you just go, not doing that. Well, a person of colour. Well, or... Absolutely. So certainly a person of colour. I think it would it'd be so to do with the script. Yeah. If the script, even if I connected emotionally with the character and thought what a brilliant role, if I felt that the script was saying something that was, um, you know, pointing at some group of people or some, uh, was insensitive towards um, anyone, or uh, then even no matter how wonderful the role is, I think I'd have a huge problem. Um, because I think it's not, certainly never just about the role you're playing, it's about what the story is, mm. the uh, the effect of the whole story uh, that it has on people. I've certainly played some, you know, I've played a woman who, a Victorian woman who shoots Indigenous people, mm. and that was really hard to do, but I remember that was on film, and having to shoot all these Aboriginals, and then at lunchtime, they're all laughing with me and having lunch with me and saying, you were fantastic the way you shot us, and they were, found that really amusing, and I'm sitting there apologising to them, saying, I'm so sorry, this is a character I'm playing, but, mm. you know, and they were saying, you don't have to explain, you know. <laughs> And that was kind of really confronting and confusing. It is, um, you know, this goes to a, a broader question that um, you know, I mentioned just before, of who gets to tell whose story? Because in publishing and writing, there's a sort of really growing movement called Own Voices, which insists that the experience of people from a marginalised group can only be written about by a writer who themselves is of that group. And I find myself very torn on this. What What do you think about that sort of drawing lines of who's allowed to, you know, inhabit another yeah. character, not like themselves? I think that I certainly imagine as a writer, I find that kind of unfair because I mean I think fundamentally I do believe that you know feelings are universal, and we can, through empathy and compassion imagine what someone is feeling and going through and thank goodness we can so if we see a marginalized group of people and see them suffering and see injustices happen to them we can imagine 
We cannot be them. We can't really experience it, obviously. But one of the jobs of an actor, the main job of an actor, apart from telling a story, is to go places that are outside your comfort zone, to go to places and explore them and, and represent characters and people, real people, who are out of your realm, who are beyond your realm of understanding. And as an actor, that is the greatest challenge, to play people in situations which are, which are so close to you, you just feel typecast mm. every time. So not only is that personally not satisfying, but it's also feels like it's um, asking the actor not to do their full job, not to expand to the degrees which they're, they're willing to go to. So there are no, to my knowledge, in the, certainly in the theatre and the film at the moment, there, is no, there are no actually written guidelines. There might be, but I'm not aware of them. Of written guidelines of what you can and can't play as an actor. However, there's an understanding. Uh, there are certain things you definitely wouldn't do and wouldn't want to, but when it comes to, like, can I play someone who has a severe mental illness? If I explore that and I investigate it and I work on it, and I, I believe I should be mm. able to. Mm. If I play someone who's homeless, um, yes, I would jump at that opportunity to to do all the work required and research and everything to to portray that person. Mm. I think the Catherine McGregor thing is so interesting because she herself refuses to um, fit uh, the expectations that even completely. the trans community would have. But she has every right mm. to be non-political. She's a very political person, but to be non... Uh, have her own politics. I mean, she has every right to, I think, to be... Her, her journey, her story, be herself in mm. it. Um, there is enormous pressure, obviously, with any marginalised group to have um, collective voices who all um, have the same view and the same... So she does get a lot of, you know, uh, there's a lot of tussle there. Um, but she has every right. Mm. And I feel that as long as you're not harming anyone, as long as it's not viciously, it's not attacking um, someone, if it's not making fun of them, I personally would love to think that I, there's the potential to be able to explore things that are definitely outside of your, creatively outside of your, um, your own experience. Well, thank you, Heather. And now we're going to return to our earlier conversation. That is really interesting. I'll talk about that later, but just in terms of the um, becoming Kate. Yeah. Uh, firstly, Kate is the most generous person of herself and you can see that in the amount of um, when she talks about things how active her mind is but she was so generous in that she just would talk and talk and talk just spend time with me I had to do very little in that situation where you've actually got the person opposite you yes who is willing to share everything I just listened I listened and when I was sitting with her I would adopt her physicality Amazing. slightly. I'd say, oh, she's leaning that way a bit. She's sitting forward a bit. And then Kate has a very distinctive um, bite. So she has, um, I'm just trying to emulate it now, but her jaw is in a very particular way. Her, her, she breathes in a very particular way. She takes in an inhalation and then the idea comes out on the exhalation, she had, which gives her force to her words. Um, which is why when she speaks it has authority um, 
And so it was really, that was a unique experience because that was really osmosis. That was very much a process of sitting with her, watching and listening. A very close observation, right? Or does this come naturally to no, you? No, that was observation. Yeah, that was a lot of that was, well, not just observation, but it was... Um, sort of emulation. Yes, it was feeling her. Yeah, amazing. I, 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 I wish you people could see. <laughs> it was, <laughs> and there's bodies. It sort was of... trying to feel her, if mm. that makes sense. Mm. And, and then, of course, there's the script, which her story is so, so extraordinary, her story. So matching that, the journey that she's still going on, but this incredible journey and the contradictions in her and the, the struggles within her, I mean, it was just amazing material. Yeah. So that was very exciting. And so there you had a, a live yeah, physical that, lottery very, yeah, So that hasn't happened very often. Yeah. So that was a unique experience. But when you don't have that, for instance, I did a show, a beautiful show, I loved it anyway, a show called Cloud Nine uh, a few years ago with Kip Williams directing and Carol Churchill play. Yes. And that's about a woman, or I played, we each played double roles. I played a nine-year-old boy and then I played a... Um, 60 something year old woman but for instance in terms of physicality both of those were great examples the nine-year-old boy I had to play nine-year-old boy and that didn't frighten me at all because I feel any actor can get in touch with their childhood access it anyway reasonably comfortably so that didn't daunt me but the physicality of it was the challenge mm. so the designer helped remarkably by giving me this little sailor suit so already she handed me a design which was going to help enormously and she cut the proportions of it so that I wouldn't you know she spent quite a long time working out the proportions of whether it should be wasted or hip what would make me look smaller what would make wow. me look um you know because this particular child was quite low to the ground his energy like you know if it's that the center of gravity was low because he was sort of lolloping around a bit and and then there was this energy that would come up, up up high through him. So finding that physicality through the costume really helped. And then, then the rest of that physicality was very much about emotionally where things sat in that person, mm. which is normal for every, any role. But playing the 60-something-year-old woman, Kip Williams did an amazing thing. In the last scene, it's not in the script, but he introduced her that she's on a swing. So he puts the character on a swing, which I then swung out swung out over the audience's heads which was an amazing wow. idea but by putting me on the swing putting a 60 something year old woman on a child's swing did it all for me again because I physically didn't have to stand there and deliver this really beautiful speech about um, her loss of sexuality and her regaining her feeling of sexuality in her 60s to stand there and do it would have felt too in control mm. would have felt like giving a bit of a lecture yeah. or something. To put me on a swing, which is childlike, that she's vulnerable, yeah. that I could, my feet could be dangling or touching the ground, that I could push a little bit, that I could hold the, the ropes of the string, the, the metal, there was metal chains, mm. play with those. It was, uh, things like that are gifts. And that's where the design concept or the director's concept or something you find in a rehearsal can give you so much in terms of physicality of a character. Mm. And you can sometimes feel so stuck. It's that old fashioned, that old thing, what do I do with my hands? Yeah. Some people go, what do I do with my hands? Because the hardest thing when you're on stage or even in front of a camera 
is what do you do with these appendages? <laughs> like, yeah. what do you do with them? You know, no one wants to see you running your hands through your hair all the time, as <laughs> we do in life. What? And in life, we tend to be able to deal with our hands quite well. We just put them at rest or we use them. But when you feel you're being watched, the first thing people feel uncomfortable is about, what do I do with my hands? Oh, that's so interesting. I'm going to come back to right. about props and objects okay. and stuff. Um, but I'm so fascinated to hear you talk about, you know, when you talked about Kate McGregor or mm. the boy, you'd, you articulate these really detailed things about their, you know, you talked about her, her mm. bite and her jaw almost and the, and the way speech came out because of that. With the boy, you talked about him being low to the ground and the energy sort of springs up from the centre. Yeah. That, I don't know anybody else who would be able to articulate those things about... I mean, do all actors have this kind of language for... I think all actors have... This is something that really interests me, is that I think actors, and I've been thinking about it a lot at the moment through this um, coronavirus uh, pandemic that we're going through, and how actors, and not just actors, but all people in the arts, how we are sort of seen as hobbyists, and unless you're a celebrity, um, and mind you, the celebrities are the ones who don't probably need JobKeeper at the moment, so... Yeah. <laughs> but if you're not a celebrity, you are sort of seen as, oh, well, they haven't made it, so then they're possibly... Um, they're just hobbyists. Getting people to understand that actors who have... Um, get to exercise their craft often enough have, and that's the sad thing that this may not happen in the mm. future, but if you get to exercise your craft often enough, then you have a wealth, wealth of tools, exercises, perceptions that could really help yourself and other people. But I think actors have amazing skills. Yeah, like well, extraordinary so skills, intricate. just as directors do and designers. And I think that because anyone who's engaged... <clears throat> it particularly it does take the opportunity to be able to practice it but if you get to practice it enough uh, and live it enough um, there's a wealth of stuff that is of great benefit not just to acting yes. but to other areas of life I think mm. well hallelujah I'm, mm. I'm totally on board with that mm. um, as all creative pursuits people who yeah, are creative all creative, uh, anyone who engages in a creative pursuit and gets to practice it and practice it will discover new ways of looking at the world and at life that can really offer to other people who don't get that opportunity. Yeah, we need Yeah, we, we need, need artists. artists. We need artists. So just going back to this thing of observation of how you can articulate what's going on in a body... Um, so when I think about that, I think about the kind of the bits of the body and how they move. But you've got a whole other language for um, energy and, and the place of the body in space. Do you kind of go through these things systematically when you're, you know, um, going to inhabit, no. say, the 60-year-old woman? <clears throat> what is, I yeah. No, I don't. It's not systematic. And um, I think it goes more from a feeling. So I'll, and this is where the writer is so important, yet again, the writers, the writers, you know. I go back to the writing and the feel of the words in my mouth, the feel of, and it comes back to motivation and intention and all those things which um, to do with <clears throat> acting in itself, how to develop a character through the language. But it's very much a feeling. So I'll sit with something like in a rehearsal 
um, oh, okay, for instance, uh, did a show called Harp in the South, which was um, a wonderful Ruth success. Park mm -hmm. trilogy that Kate Mulvaney adapted, did a brilliant adaptation. And she created very, I mean, Ruth Park had these extraordinary characters, which Kate then brought to life brilliantly for stage. So there I played a, a woman who aged um, from 40 years old to 90 or something. And that was so much fun. There again, costume did a lot for me. Sagging breasts, which wasn't that hard. Sagging <laughs> breasts and wider hips. But that role, partly it was because she was Irish and the language she used was so um, gritty and, and cheeky. And so the cheekiness of the language, she was such a devilish character, really helped with the physicality because as you'd say the lines, your body would react in a particular way. Your shoulders would go up which cheeky people do or the fingers would come out in a cheeky way and so you just discover it through the language sometimes um through the you find out what the I suppose it's the physicality very much also comes out of where the characters see how they see themselves and then how the character feels they're being perceived whether they feel comfortable you know you you're a degree of comfort each character has with themselves uh, which is dictated by the writing yet again um, and, but then beyond the writing, in a rehearsal, what you're excavating and exploring is, I guess, what does a person believe to be true? Mm. And, and what does you as your character, what do you believe to be true at any moment? And I think that's what I'm trying to always find out. What do I believe to be true in this moment and in this moment? And if something, if my character's going, no, that, what that person's saying is not true, I don't trust that, I don't like that, then that does something to me physically. Wow. And if a character let's say five times in a scene, is going, ah, oh, I don't believe that to be true, then they're going to become a person who physically is receding or, or bombastic. Mm. Like you can make different choices and that's when the choices start to come in. And what's wonderful about why you can go and see one play so many times done in different, by, with different actors is A, because you hear the script differently, but also someone will have a very different take on that character. I mean... Even though Richard III has a hunchback, any number of people will do that in a very different way. Yeah, so fascinating. It's not just, oh, there's that character who's a hunchback. There's a character who's a hunchback, but he's hiding it. Or he's a hunchback, or she, as Kate Mulvaney did it as a she. Um, she's uh, proud of it. She's going to flaunt it. So it's, that comes in, into it as well as to how far you go. Mm. Well, that, Does um, that make sense? Yes, oh. yes. I'm just staring at you because I'm really <laughs> interested. So I guess I've been asking you about sort of preparation mm. anyway and then we've moved into the rehearsal room a bit. But I, I wonder, you know, you've done some of this preparation, then you get in the rehearsal room. Now, as a control freak novelist, I would think, well, here, these people are just messing up what <laughs> I, I know to be absolutely right. So how important is this? Uh, interplay between you and the other actors and the director in that room it's everything yeah it's everything so yeah everything I'm talking about is not condensed until just before I walk into a rehearsal room this is what happens all through the process but the most important thing like vitally important is that when you get up for the first time you get up to the last time you're up in the rehearsal room you are exploring and you're listening and I think one of the hardest things for us to do is listen 
um, in life in general, but, um, and I have to constantly tell myself, you're not listening properly, you're not listening properly, just listen, 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 because in the rehearsal room, listening is the most important thing. And you can't stop to listen, otherwise things don't, you're stopping anything happening. So it's listening, active listening. So you're constantly listening to the other person, listening to the director, listening to a, an alive feeling. It's having that alive feeling where you've got 360 degrees almost perception going on. And are on. you sort of taking notes at this point or are you no. just sort of absorbing it? The only notes I take in rehearsal, you'll have your script in your hand usually. Some people prefer to, um, they've learnt their lines beforehand. But you have your script. I'm literally, the first two weeks of rehearsal, literally just writing down movement, moves. I walk here, I walk there, I sit there because the worst thing is not to write those down and you come back to it. 10 days later and you've forgotten all your moves and that destroys it for everybody and yeah. that makes everyone's so that's life just hell. not a good protocol it's good protocol but it's also when you're at home then looking at the lines you go oh yes i walked over there what was my impulse to walk over? why did i walk over to the stove i must have had a reason in rehearsal so let me go back and look at those lines now and see right. why that line propelled me was it the line that propelled me what i'm saying was it that i'm deflecting what was i deflecting what that person was doing which is why i turned my back on them was i how was i you know, why did we come to that agreement? And what's interesting, you know in rehearsal that you can constantly change things. Like, there's always the rule, nothing is fixed until it's fixed. And you don't really fix things until you're in the theatre. And yet, your first instinctive responses tend to stick. Right. It always amazes me that that first impulse in the rehearsal room tends to be often the way it goes. And then you sort of, and how we come to an agreement like that, I don't know. It's extraordinary. Some scenes which involve a lot of characters, a director will say, okay, this is involving 13 characters, I, I really need you to be over here, I need you to be there. That rarely happens though. Yeah. It's usually you try different things out. But after you've worked on a scene for a morning in a rehearsal room, you tend to have a pretty good idea and is that because that it's, that's going. just come naturally? You know, you haven't overthought it? Or I think it's because think? in the first few days of a rehearsal, you'll usually sit around a table talking, talking about all these things, you know, world of the play and the writer. And you've already talked through what, what each scene is sort of about, like yeah. in the whole arc of the thing, in the whole arc of the piece. You've, had, you've got some sense of what it's about. You've seen the set or you've seen the set design, so you know the doors are here or the staircase is there or it's a big open space. So you've seen that, so you sort of know, these are my parameters and I'll work within those parameters. Um, and then you would work with the other actor and the director's always there saying, oh, maybe just try coming in that way. So you might try it three or four different ways, but by the end of that first session, it's funny, but things are often not concrete, but that's a pretty rough, good, good rough mm. idea of where it'll be, how we'll move it. I always find and that how do you find that you that you sort of um, find I don't know what you what actors' expressions are for getting the character? You know, do you feel like you sort of get into it quickly? Or? No, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's agony. Mm. <laughs> no, it's not comfortable for quite a while. It's um, I don't get embarrassed. I don't feel awkward uh, anymore. I did when I was younger. I'd think, oh, that was awful. Oh my God, that felt horrible. And I don't care anymore that it feels yeah. awful. And it does feel awful. And it feels like things are coming out of your mouth, but they're not connected to anything else. And, uh, 
No, the physicalization, it's, as I say, it's, it's getting all the different components happening and then practicing and practicing them till they come together. And I suppose it's like any, it's like baking a cake, it's like anything. You get the ingredients, you put them all, you know you want this much flour, and if you have too much flour, it's going to be too dry, so I'm going to have this much. You put them all there, and not till you're ready do you mix them all together, and then you know how far to mix them and you know how long to bake it. It's, it's very like any process. I think, if that makes sense, that it's... Yes, but what I'm always hmm. very deeply confused by about um, theatre particularly, I'm well, not confused, intrigued, is how much can, can your inhabiting of this character change over from performance to performance? I mean, how much leeway or how much um, flexibility do you even want went from you know the first show to the last show mm. when you're saying the same lines you're moving to the same places as you say everyone else is doing kind of mm -hmm. the same thing in inverted commas but mm -hmm. it's a great question because my it's, hunch is that it feels it can feel very different um we talk about theater all the time here so it, it is different obviously with uh, film because there's not that run of a show yeah. but then but then you do have to repeat things in many takes but in theater um Everyone works so differently in this way or feels differently about it. I think it's a very individual thing. Some actors do the same, technically exactly the same performance night after night after night. And I admire it immensely, but I can't do it. <laughs> I. And when you say technically, what do you mean? Okay, they will walk in at the same tempo to a scene. Right. They will speak at the same tempo with the same intention, with the same degree of energy, with the same... Um, they will sit on exactly the same line. They will pick up the fork at exactly the same moment. They will eat it the same way. They're totally reliable. Yeah. And they're actually a great, like a boy in a storm, you yeah. know, that you can hold on to because it's great to have one person doing that in a production <laughs> because you go, okay, at least we know where we are. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I personally, as I need to know what all the parameters are and, it's, and that gives me the confidence. I, think, I know in this scene what the scene's about. I know who's the scene is the, who is the focus of the scene, which character and when the, when the focus changes. I know what the director has wanted out of the scene um, and I stick very much to that unless we, because even if we'd all disagreed with the director or all of us and gone, I don't think that's what the scene, that's what we're doing, that's what you honour. Yeah. So um, if I know what all those uh, parameters are and I know what I'm working in and I trust the other people, which nine and a half times out of ten has always been the case, then there can be a little bit of play. So that as long as I'm hitting that mark where they need me to be, and as long as I'm giving them enough, and if like if I look at someone on stage to deliver a line and then one night I decide not to, that's not fair. Right. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't start not giving them the line because they need that mm. and they've rehearsed that. They need that. That is their stimulus and their... They need that. So, but up until that sort of handover point, you have until that yeah, you, you can try different things, and then you know there'll always be that you know actors saying to each other, "Do you mind very much? Could we just could you do that?" And actors giving notes to each other. Yeah, in, when I was younger, that was a free for all. People would just go and give notes to each other all the time backstage, saying, "Listen, you know that line. Would you mind? We seem to have lost what we had there. Can we get back to that? You don't do that anymore." Um, and Why is that? Well, everything's. Well, I think it's probably good that you don't, because some people don't give 
they don't do it nicely either. They come back and say, what the f*** are you doing? You changed the bloody scene. And so I think it's probably good because also there's the great obvious difficulty is that during a run of the play, some people start to see the role completely from their own point of view and their own character's point of view and they may feel my character's not getting the laughs I wanted it to, it's not getting such and such. The ego can come into it as well. Right. And then someone can start saying to another actor, listen, stop doing what you're doing over there because this is my moment, you know. Yeah, so you yeah, don't yeah. want any of that going on. So the great thing is directors so f- come in and give notes, right. which is really important. <laughs> so fascinating that you you raise point of view there because I have a question about point mm. of view. And, you know, as a novelist, you have to be completely in control of point of view. And I did wonder whether actors have to consider other people's points of view or just your own character's point of view. That's what rehearsal's for, is making sure that everyone is on the same page in terms of whose point of view this is. Right. So it's sort of like who's owning this moment on the stage? Yes, and this is where it can get very dicey and interesting because... It may not be articulated. It's a scene between a man and a woman, for instance, over a table or sitting on two couches like this, they're talking. And through the run, it might occur to one of the actors, oh, my God, I've misunderstood this whole line all this time. Because you discover things on stage and you'll discover it because an audience gives you so much information. And so you might think, oh, I've misunderstood this whole scene. And you might shift it just slightly because of a new understanding. And that might just shift the dynamic and make the other actor quite destabilised because of that. But then that's where it's important to then get the director back on board and say, I've discovered this new thing in this scene, do you think we could try and play with that? And then it comes down to the director's decision and the director saying, yeah, I think that's actually interesting, let's have a look at that. But I think it's important that um, that the director is always in on these decisions and oh it's imperative really because otherwise you don't want to have which never really happens but you don't want to have actors on stage um fighting over <laughs> who's the who's, moment. who's got the story whose wow. moment it is That's so fascinating. And, I, and ideally it's no one person's moment because you don't I, I don't like watching something where there's one character giving a monologue and everyone are just stick figures around them you want to know that everyone's engaged and in fact i heard an interview the other day with someone and they said you we always want to come on, no matter how small your role, when you enter that stage you come on with the strongest intention so that people will, you'll, you know, you will be noticed and you leave with such a strong intention that the audience want to go with you. Mm, <laughs> and I thought it was brilliant. a great way of saying it because I thought it's, uh, you never waste an opportunity as an actor, no matter how And sometimes you see a very minor part played by an actor and you cannot take your eyes yeah. off them, even they're in the background. Mm. or Because you don't, you never on stage or on film just have nothing to think about. You're always engaged, always engaged. And then it's up to the audience to sit there and choose where they look. It's the yeah. audience's choice, always, to put... Every audience member will be watching something different, seeing something different, hearing something different. So it's not for us to tell them necessarily uh, there are certain things where the director makes a definite choice is this is where the focus is this is where the focus is and that's stagecraft you know that's that's so interesting for a novelist because I think a lot of the time we will and that's certainly thinking about my own work um, think well now it's so and so's point of view and sort of forget about everybody else but that is really Mm. fascinating too 
to think, no, everybody else is still there with their own lives going because on. Because we're very all in relationship urgently. to each other. Mm. Like, I think that's the thing is that wherever you look in life, like sitting here right now, I love, whenever I, I, I do this all the time, this exercise of just, I'll just pick, um, so an object or something, I'll go, there's a white cup and then I'll look at everything else that's similar in shape to that white Everything's in relationship to that white cup all of a sudden. So it's it's um, always being completely aware that everything is a relationship. Nothing yeah. is solo, nothing is solitary and certainly not on stage. And nothing is background. And nothing is background, no. Well, that brings me to objects. When you said before, you know, what do you do with your hands? How and that th holding things and whatever is very helpful. How much use do you make of props, scenery, b furniture? You know, how important are they for you? It's important if it's necessary. And if it's a naturalistic scene, uh, for instance, uh, when I saw the Beauty Queen of Linnaean uh, with Noni Hazelhurst and um, Yale Stone, set in the kitchen. The whole thing pretty much is in that kitchen. So the props and the setting is incredibly important. How they use the kettle, how they put it, how many times she goes and puts that kettle on. How does she fill that kettle? How does she, where does that water come from? So, you know, the prop becomes incredibly important to that, to the life of that character. And it makes the life of that character seem, oh my God, this life goes on like this every day, every day. You know, so it says a lot about the characters, about the world. Other things, which are just a bare stage, where it's just the, the power of the presence of the ideas. The ideas carry the, 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 the whole story. So um, I must say I, I quite enjoy having props because it helps me um, not think about anything else. But, um, but that's only if it's appropriate. So what do you do then if you're on one of those very minimalist sets where it's just you in the spotlight? How, what do you? Oh, you find it easily because if the language, you'd only be there alone or in the spotlight if the language was carrying you. Right. In which case, you can be very still, or you just walk. But your hands would then find their life because the, when we think, and the thoughts are the strongest focus for us, the body will just follow. It's. It's choosing which is leading, what's right. leading you. Um, is it a, um, there's a great sort of acting exercise which um, Charmaine Gladwell gives us um, at the STC and that is where you've got a line and you take, you walk in one direction with that line and when there's the next line, walk in another direction and then another direction and another direction. And it's just an exercise to help you realise how, how much your thoughts change, where they go and it's putting it in your body. So you're realising, I've got this thought, and then this thought, and then this, and there's a short one, there's a long one. And so it's putting it in your body in a way where you stop thinking about your body, and your body just follows your thoughts. Mm. So you don't, you know, you just then trust your body will follow. Yeah. So it's very organic, really. Very this. organic, yeah. Oh, look, I could talk about this all day, but I, I, before we run out of time, I want to move out from talking mm. about this sort of... Um, character development into thinking about life as an artist. Um, yeah, so a, a broader discussion about how to be an artist, basically. Now, one thing I've always thought about you is in relation to what Patti Smith said about building a good name. 
She said, build a good name, keep your name clean. Don't make compromises, don't worry about making a bunch of money or being successful. Be concerned with doing good work and make the right choices and protect your work. And if you build a good name, eventually that name will be its own currency. Isn't that fabulous? I, I hadn't read what, that. So what do you think about that in relation to what you... Well, I've never thought of it like that. I don't think of my name or my good name or anything. Um, I feel blessed. I feel blessed that I have always known why I'm acting. And I think that's important to know why you're an artist and to keep asking yourself. And it's changed for me a little bit. I know, I've, I know for certain that I did not become an actor for fame or money. And I never wanted it. I wouldn't mind a little bit of money, but I certainly, that's not why I'm an actor. I know why I became an actor and I know that it came out of, and it sounds wanky, but it came out of compassion. A feeling of, of um, wanting to affect people positively uh, and make people feel that they are part of humanity and that my favourite book when I was growing up was the Time Life book, the, the History of Man, I think it's called, the Book of Man, the History of Man, which is a photojournalist book, black and white photographs of war-torn countries, of women giving birth, of, and I remember just poring over that book all the time thinking, I just want to understand um, how people's lives could get like that. Um, and then mixed with that, my mother was dying and I remember thinking when my mother, although she, it was a secret, she was dying and but when she died, of course it was um, great loss and a great sadness, but thinking what a gift. I remember thinking, I, I, I think I felt a bit ashamed for thinking this for a little while and didn't tell anyone, but now I talk about it because it, I felt she'd given me the opportunity to experience something not many other girls I knew of my age, and I was 17, had experienced. And I got to experience grief and loss and pain and longing um, and then look at these pictures of these people and go, oh, I think I understand what this woman feels like who's lost her husband and her children and blah, 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 and begin to understand those feelings. So getting back to your thing, it's like I think for me what's been important is to always make sure, it can't be in every job you do because you don't get offered, I mean, it's not like you get lots of choices in mm. this industry. It's not what people imagine. You get offered things and you either say yes or no or you don't get offered or you, there's a lot of rejection. But the work you do, as long as you're approaching each job from the same set of values or from the same motivation or the same ideal or whatever word you want to use, if you know what you want to put into that work and what you want other people to get out of that work, then that will be your name, I guess. That will be what you represent in your field in that area. So everyone will be different. Everyone is different and everyone will have different reasons for doing it. But I think if you can find out what yours is, maybe someone's is to, um, to be the most um, renowned for a particular type of performance. And if they're going into everything with that in mind, then they will achieve that. And that's what they will be known for. So I think it's what you're comfortable with mm. and what you believe to be true for you is what's important. Mm. And that will sustain you as well. Because if you're not, if you're just doing jobs because, oh, that'll 
I've don't get me wrong, I've done jobs for money. I mean, it's not like every job. But even so, when I've done something that hasn't felt, you know, great, um, and I haven't felt I've done a great job, I still think someone will get something out of this. Yeah. Um, so you need sincerity, even when you're doing. I think a job so. I think that... it's important, and I think otherwise it won't sustain you. Mm. Otherwise, you will find many reasons not to continue doing it. Otherwise, you will not meet the right people as well. You will not form relationships with with people who you feel simpatico with. How, when you've been at your best as an actor, when you've done your most complex and challenging work that has worked brilliantly, what, I guess, what has it felt like and what have been the, the forces that led you to that place, do you think? To the place of that of, feeling. Of that great performance. That's interesting because I don't know if, if many actors, if we feel we've done great performances, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's I think that... But do you have an idea of your best, you don't have to say what it is, but in your head when you have been really at your shining best or is it always well, to come? I think I, I think you always hope it's to come, but I think it's because you're always wanting more. I think that feeling... Um, well, it's more the feeling, I guess, which is the transcendent feeling, which I think most artists who sustain a life of it, it's because they have experienced in their work some at some point where they felt that they were not only totally in control, but it was happening to them and for them at the same time and by them. So it's that um, you're part of something much bigger than yourself. And that's when it feels successful. That's when it feels good, is when you know it's not just you at work here. You've done your work and something else has taken over. And that something's actually working through you. And it's a spiritual experience, I guess. Now, that doesn't happen that often. And I think that's what keeps people in it, often is hoping that experience will come again. But that's when you think, I must have done a good job because I had this experience. <laughs> that I felt so in control, so... Um, so I was so that person, I felt so in them, I felt so guided by them and anything could happen and I would have been okay. You know, the floor could have collapsed, I would have been okay. I could have forgotten all my lines and I would have made them all up, it wouldn't have mattered. And everyone, and you feel the audience and everyone is accepting you completely and, and not accepting you but understanding it. And that's that experience, I don't know if you know what, you know that experience. But it's that experience where it's, I'm sure, writers, when you feel it's being written for you almost. Yes, um, I, it's being written through it's coming you, through coming you. through you. So it's not an outside force doing it, it's still you. But that it's, um, and that's when you feel like you've done a good job, I think. <laughs> and well, apart from that, you sort of go, oh, that was good, I think that was good. That bit didn't work, that bit didn't work. And you sort of pull it apart a bit and go, oh, I can do better tomorrow night. Um, but I think I try to keep that feeling alive by, I always keep a, like a thesaurus of words, um, verbs, I guess, that so every night before I go on stage, I, within the parameters of what that scene's about, use a different verb to propel me on or to propel me through it. And that helps me find new things and that helps me feel n newly engaged. Um, and more likely things will, I'll get that feeling. But if you try and repeat, repeating something, you'll never experience it. Trying to repeat what you did the night before or the day before, repetition will kill that experience. But how do you avoid, I mean, I struggle with this now 
uh, after only eight books, I, I fear repeating myself now. You know, how do you keep seeking without repeating yourself in a long career? How do we do that? Oh, but we do repeat ourselves. Like, I'm still me. Like, no character, even though my might build a different character, I always feel disappointed when I see myself on TV or... I think, oh, that's just still just me. I felt so different. I go, I felt so different in that role, but no, it's just me. And so, of course, we... We repeat ourselves because we are us, but you're coming at it from a different part of you or a different um, set of rules or a different perspective. So it feels different. Mm. So you don't repeat yourself because it will still come from you and that will be the only similar thing, really, mm. won't it? But even if we repeat ourselves, because we do repeat ourselves. I know, but I never mind somebody else repeating. <laughs> You know, I love reading writers who... Well, Helen Garner, for instance. Yes. You look at Helen you Garner. Recognize. It's a very recognisable Helen. Mm -hmm. I read her piece on the weekend. And I go, that's Helen Garner. I know before I finished the first couple sentences. And I feel comfortable knowing that that's Helen Garner. So, yeah, she's repeating in a way, but she's putting forward a new idea or putting it yes. from a different perspective or a new way of looking at it or a new observation. Maybe it's the inquiry. It's curiosity, I guess. Yeah. It's keeping curiosity alive always. That, um, but it's a good. Que it's a difficult question to answer, really. I don't know because we. I, I I always think I feel different, but then I see it and go, "Oh, it's just me." <laughs> <laughs> Who am I kidding? Oh, look up. I think we probably should stop there. I love um, the idea of ending on verbs and transcendence, actually, <laughs> from before. So, Heather Mitchell, thank you oh, so very much. What a much. delight. It's, it's been, been gorgeous. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. You can find details of our conversation today on the podcast page of my website, charlottewood.com.au. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join me again next time on The Writer's Room. <laughs>